A few weeks ago, when football fans were really settling into the season, some of them found themselves debating something that had nothing to do with who was winning or making the most touchdowns. It was a controversial scene from the Netflix series about former football player and activist Colin Kaepernick. Colin in Black and White spans Kaepernick's high school years as a student athlete. The show uses a combination of documentary-style segments and scripted drama to tell his story. Everybody knows the first step in making any football team is the tryout. And to make it to the pros, the tryout starts with the combine. The combine is something that happens every February ahead of the draft in April. It's a time when coaches and scouts get a chance to evaluate the players they might be interested in recruiting. And for a lot of NFL players, this is where their professional career starts. Potential players are paraded out in front of scouts, coaches, and owners who measure their physical talent and on-field abilities. Coaches will tell you they're looking for warriors, killers, beasts. They say they want you to be an animal out there. In the controversial scene from the show, you see a dramatization of a combine. The players are running and jumping and doing drills. You see their bodies get tested and measured and inspected. Before they put you on the field, teams poke, prod, and examine you, searching for any defect that might affect your performance. No boundary respected. No dignity left intact. Then the scene changes. The players step out of the frame, and they're transformed into enslaved people being sold at an auction. The imagery is striking, and it has a lot in common with the combine scene we see right before it. People don't like to think about the fact that this is something that happened. Rhiannon Walker is a sports journalist who's written for The Undefeated. Now she covers the Washington football team for The Athletic, and she's attended combines before. And while she recognizes that being a well-paid football player in 2021 isn't the same as being an enslaved person in 1821, she does understand how just the sheer optics of one of these combines can spark comparisons to the dehumanizing practices that happened during slavery. One of the things that they would do is they would make determinations on which slaves they would buy, which ones they would sell for how much because of their features, you know, their size, how strong they were, their weight, their ability to possibly reproduce other strong children, offspring and things of that nature so that they could have an even stronger workforce base. This is not something that's far off distant in the past. This is something that's one or two generations away and people don't necessarily want to confront that. Not necessarily, they don't want to confront that. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. The scene from Colin in Black and White that compares chattel slavery to the NFL upset a lot of people, and you can understand why. But it also sparked a conversation about the long-standing systemic racism in the NFL. But the series doesn't just call out the NFL. It shines a light on the systemic racism present in the three major American sports, football, baseball, and basketball. So today, we're gonna talk about that. Why are sports so racist? Professional athletes of all racial backgrounds put their bodies on the line whenever they step on the court or field. But when we're talking about the NFL, an overwhelming majority of the players are Black, almost 60%. Historically, Black bodies were used as labor and for capital. And so if you look at sports, Black bodies are now used as labor and for capital. 
So the relationship has continued. Sabrina Razak is a PhD candidate who studies and writes about the intersection of sports, gender, and race. She told me about this term, sports plantation politics. It's a field of study that looks at the dynamics that show up in a lot of sports, not just the NFL. But it's this idea that some of the vestiges of slavery, the system, the social dynamics, have influenced sports culture today. So when we think about the afterlife of slavery and colonial legacies, this is one of them. And the NFL specifically, when they are in the combines, the rigorous training and tests and analytics that coaches go through is like no other in comparison to the NBA and MLB. So there is quite a difference of how coaches are really evaluating your body and your body's ability to produce labor that will then produce profit. When the clip from Colin Kaepernick's series did the rounds on Twitter a few weeks ago, a lot of people were pissed. Because professional football players make a lot more money than the average person. But the NFL owners and corporations that sponsor the games make a lot more money than the players, often at the expense of the players' bodies. Rhiannon Walker again. Compared to what the billionaire owners make, again, billionaire owners, compared to what they bring back out of revenue, out of sales to corporations and things like that, commercials and everything else like that, every time that they come up with a new deal, whether it be with ESPN, whether it be with NBC, or anything else like that, the reason they get into such a bidding war over the price is that they're trying to make more money. These players are going out there doing the grueling work. They're the ones playing the games. They're the ones who take on the injuries and things of nature. They're the ones who are ultimately replaceable while these owners sit up top and they make their money off of their bodies until the next generation comes along. And just how little the NFL values the bodies of Black athletes was evident in some of the policies they've had over the years. Like race norming. That's the legal practice of assuming that Black athletes start out with lower cognitive abilities than their white counterparts. It was used to justify lower settlements for concussion-related injuries. And it sounds like something that's straight out of slavery. The NFL just ended the practice of race norming this year, in 2021. Another reason people say the NFL is racist? The lack of Black coaches. To date, there are only three Black head coaches in the league. Even when Black coaches succeed in the NFL, if it's not a certain level of success, they can get the can. I'll give you an example of Jim Caldwell. Jim Caldwell is the former coach of the Detroit Lions. He became the first Black head coach in the team's history when he was hired in 2014. Caldwell was fired despite his record being pretty good. The team made it to the playoffs, something they hadn't done in a while. So the Lions are officially out of the playoffs again. So the next question is... Is Jim Caldwell going to be out of a job? The Lions uh, have informed Jim Caldwell that he will not be returning as their head coach. The team went to the playoffs. They had winning records, which is something that, if you know the Detroit Lions and the organization in football, they've been starved for success for a very long time. But after Caldwell took over, Rhiannon says the team leadership moved the goalpost. Like just making the playoffs wasn't good enough for this team that had struggled so mightily to make the playoffs in the many seasons leading up to that point in time as well, too. They felt that they were a little big for their britches. So they brought in another coach, Matt Patricia. And with him, they didn't even make it to the playoffs. But that didn't seem to matter anymore. And even though Caldwell has said he doesn't think he was fired because of racism, Rhiannon and a lot of others disagree. They say this was part of a pattern they see over and over again, a double standard for Black coaches. 
there's this lack of accountability. Certain people get the opportunity, even though they haven't shown a great deal, to become head coaches. Certain people can continue to go to the playoffs time and time again with very little success. And here's a coach who has called out the lack of opportunity for Black coaches. Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They keep asking us what's wrong. Everybody knows what's wrong. We can't solve the problem. Everybody else can solve the problem. Until those people start speaking up, that needle's not going to move very much. So, I mean, all we can do is coach and be the best we can be. Todd Bowles is somebody that, with that defense that they had, which helped lead them to the Super Bowl last year and beat the Kansas City Chiefs, but the point being is that there are plenty of Black coaches who are qualified, and there are plenty of Black coaches who get looked over time and time again because one the other side of it, really probably the most important thing, is who do you know? And critics of the league have pointed out that a lot of the problems stem from the fact that the NFL still runs like a good old boys club. Are you in the room with them? Are you on the golf course with these guys that are ultimately making the hiring decisions? And the other thing is that in terms of the hiring decisions, you have to look at the general managers and the team presidents of these teams. And the Washington football team is the first team in the NFL to ever have a black president. And that was in 2020. So that tells you automatically that these black coaches, they're not seeing people that look like them when it comes down to the decision making part of this whole thing. Yes, they may be very qualified on paper, but there's so many other things I think as we know that go into who's getting hired and who's not getting hired. There might not be a lot of Black coaches, but there are a lot of Black players with contracts that don't give them the same power as other athletes who play different sports. NFL contracts are not guaranteed by default like they are in the NBA, MLB, and NHL. A guaranteed contract just means that the team has to pay the athlete the full amount of the contract. For the most part, if a basketball player signs a contract for $10 million, even if they sit on the bench and don't shoot a single shot, they are still entitled to their $10 million. Of course, contracts vary in football, and some have better terms than others. But for the most part, a player isn't guaranteed the full amount of their contract. Even if, let's say, that player is cut through no fault of their own, they won't get paid. Another issue with the contracts? Only the very top football players get any say when it comes to where they want to actually play. The restrictions that are are placed within the contract for requesting a trade or even wanting a trade or the ability to to negotiate many conditions of your you know your contract is very limited in the NFL. So um, when it comes to the MLB and an NBA, you know you have different clauses in it as well that give you a little like again very limited freedom. And you'll notice too the the people who request a trade or, or want a trade, you notice they hold an incredible amount of power. And when I say power, I mean economic power to be able to do that. So you have the Tom Brady's, you have the Odell Beckham's, you have those types of players who have that kind of power to even announce that they want to trade. And of course, another reason why people perceive the NFL as being a racist organization is the reason why we're talking about any of this today. The way the league responded to Colin Kaepernick's 2016 protest against police brutality. Fans, players, and even the former president weighed in and accused Kaepernick of disrespecting the country and the national anthem. Some disagreed with the protest itself. Others thought it didn't belong in football. But the whole Kaepernick controversy shed a light on this thing that a lot of people do. We don't see athletes as actual multidimensional human beings. We start thinking of them as this source of entertainment. 
The Colin Kaepernick haters failed to acknowledge how Colin Kaepernick's racial identity might inform how he feels about what's happening in this country in the national anthem. They don't want to talk about these things. Like, for instance, when Colin Kaepernick started protesting, people didn't want to have a conversation about why is it that we have the national anthem tied into a sporting event in the first place? Why is that exactly? Why is it that the DOD is expending a ton of money on having these certain like the national anthem or like having the military salute and things of that nature? Why are they spending all this money on this particular sector that has nothing to do with what they're supposed to be doing in terms of national safety and things of that nature? Why is there a rule that we have to stand during the national anthem? Why is that? People don't want to have that critical conversation. They don't want to critically think about these things and evaluate these things because, again, it just it's something that they don't want to have presented to them. They don't want to confront it. It's not something that was at the forefront of their consciousness before, but for others, that's not something that we have the luxury of not paying attention to or not asking the question of why this is the way that it is. That's why the comparison exists. That's why it makes people uncomfortable as well, too. But a lot of players would be afraid to speak out the way Kaepernick did. We're seduced by that in the media where people will be like, they can go wherever they want. They're making millions of dollars. Why are we even talking about this? They're acting so selfish, so spoiled. And that type of narrative contributes and reproduces those unequal power relations within sports to have athletes, really the majority of them, I'd say 95% of them, not to say anything, right? So they continue to be like, you know, being the grateful native, like, I'm, you know, so happy to be there. Thank you for being on this team. I welcome this opportunity and really repressing any feelings of unhappiness because they know how it's going to be taken up in the media as being selfish, as being greedy. So that's football. But the NFL doesn't have a monopoly on racism when it comes to sports leagues. And one of the things we learned from Colin in Black and White is that in high school, Kaepernick was actually better at baseball than he was football. And he was really good. Like, he had scholarship offers from several schools. As a kid, I loved playing baseball. A lot of people think it was my best sport. They're probably right. So why didn't Colin Kaepernick, the NFL quarterback, become Colin Kaepernick, the major league pitcher? In the series, we see teenage Kaepernick having to deal with micro and major aggressions when the team would travel for away games. Hotel workers would always assume he wasn't a part of the mostly white team, and they would ask him to leave. They would accuse him of being a panhandler. And at the games, umpires seemed to be extra hard on young Colin. And whenever he stepped up to the mound, the parents and fans in the stands would turn the vitriol all the way up. Just the sight of Kaepernick seemed to make them angrier. Whether it was the spectators or the umpires, in baseball, something always seemed off. I've met parents and the research that I've done to you, my parents would be like, he just decided he didn't want to play anymore. And now he wants to play basketball or now he wants to stick to football. And it's the expressions that are permissible in those sports often connect to an identity where people feel welcome. So they stay. And the ones where they don't are allowed to express, that's where they leave. Kaepernick ultimately decided to walk away from baseball and to pursue football because he loved the game, but also because he said he didn't feel welcome in baseball. And he was on to something. To date, only 7.5% of the MLB players are Black. And to understand how things got like this, you have to go back and look at the MLB's history. Most people know that the MLB was all white until Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947. But technically, baseball was never officially segregated in the rule books. As Rhiannon put it, 
there was a gentleman's agreement to keep baseball segregated. Thus, we had the Negro Leagues. The two leagues were separate, but not equal. Some of the best baseball players of all time played in the Negro Leagues, but they're rarely recognized. Think about it. Even if you've never watched a baseball game in your life, you probably know who Babe Ruth is. But you probably never heard of Josh Gibson, one of the best power hitters the sport has ever seen. He never got to play in the major leagues because he was Black. I wonder what the numbers would look like. I wonder who would have set the records. I wonder who would have done what and who would have gone down in the record books as being the best at whatever the case may have been. Or some people's records would have looked as good if this other talent pool was mixed in and blended and not excluded from the major talent pool. It's not that these Black players weren't capable of playing with their white counterparts. They just weren't allowed to play with their white counterparts. So, I mean, it's one of those things where if people were given the same equal playing field, right? They were all given the same opportunity to succeed. There was no boundary set in place based on society or anything else along those lines. What would the numbers, what would the records, what would the stats that we know today, what would they look like? The Negro Leagues had pretty much folded by 1960 as more Black players went to the MLB. But the league still wasn't exactly welcoming during the Jim Crow era. And a lot of the great players from the Negro Leagues never got a chance to play in the MLB at all. And even when we talk about the Jim Crow era as well, too, because they weren't necessarily happy to have these Black players. Yeah, like, okay, so like, you know, Babe Ruth is one of the greatest or this guy's one of the greatest, whatever the case may be. But let's not forget that there was segregation happening. So maybe that's skewing that quite a bit. And we can't revisit it, unfortunately, see what would have happened if the circumstances were different. We have what we have. But just to simply say, always keep that in the back of your mind when we discuss these things, we discuss these dynasties, or we discuss these great players. How would some people's careers, how would some of these teams' histories be different if not for the fact that you excluded, at that time, like maybe half of the workforce from being able to participate simply because of racism? And even after integration, racism still ran rampant in the MLB, even when the league had more players than they do today. In 1975, 27% of MLB players were Black, more than triple what it is today. But the coaches and managers were still overwhelmingly white. In 1972, well after he retired, Jackie Robinson called out the league for its lack of black managers. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. And not much has changed since he made that speech. In Major League Baseball, there's one owner of color, and I believe it's Los Angeles Angels owners. He's Latino. So one out of 30 owners, right? That's pretty bad. So then when we talk about why we don't see more Black managers, also keep in mind that 7.5% of Major League Baseball players are Black. That's a very small number. That number has dwindled. So the pool is shrinking as well, too. And part of that is because they're not being afforded the opportunities. People aren't in, you know, they're not going to stick around for something where they can't see themselves growing within an industry. So in terms of getting these opportunities to become managers and things of that nature, the stakes are very high for Black managers. Even Black managers who are successful are at risk of not retaining their job. The example I used in this case was Dusty Baker, who was just in the World Series with the Houston Astros this year. They lost to the Atlanta Braves in six games. It was the fact that he is the only manager, the only manager who has ever been fired from three different teams when his final season he had 90 plus wins or more. The only manager that has ever had that happen to him. It happened to him when he was with the San Francisco Giants. It happened to him when he was with the Cincinnati Reds. And it also happened to him when he was with the Washington Nationals as well, too. The margin for error is very, very small. 
if you're going to do this, you're going to have to succeed. Black managers who've had success find themselves being fired at a rate higher than white managers who are being hired who have absolutely no coaching experience. None. They're not the bench coach. They're not the pitching coach. None of that stuff. People are bringing them in, hiring them, a lot of them former players, to coach because they simply have relationships with these people, which is one of the things I talked about is that this is not just about meritocracy. This is about who you know. Are you on the greens with these people? Are you in the country clubs with these people? Are you at the events with these people? Baseball and the NFL mirror themselves in that way. Another reason people point to when trying to understand why baseball is so white are the unspoken rules about how you're supposed to look and act. A baseball culture can be a little outdated and stiff. And we see how that plays out in the Kaepernick series. Colin started wearing his hair in cornrows, and his coaches insisted that he cut his hair. Mom said your baseball coach called today. About what? They want you to cut your hair. (laughs) What? You have to cut your hair if you're going to stay on the team. Oh, (laughs) you're joking, right? It's a team rule, Colin. What team rule? What makes sense? Truth be told, you do look unprofessional. Unprofessional? Why am I supposed to look professional? I'm 14. I'm a kid. We told you. It's a team rule. But why? Because you look like a thug. Words like professional and thug are often coded language steeped in stereotypes and people's biases. But respectability and professionalism are traits the MLB values. Baseball is so rigid sometimes. You you see the conversations all the time about the the unspoken rules of baseball. Who cares? Who cares, y'all? Let's just have fun. Another reason the MLB has a reputation for being racist? The fans. When I take you to Fenway Park, where Adam Jones is addressing the racial taunts that happened last night. That was during the game between Jones's Baltimore Orioles and the Boston Red Sox. Let's listen in. Uh, I heard the N-word, and, you know, I, I, I get certain reactions when, you know, someone says something clever or says something really, really stupid and ignorant. And last night, it was not clever. It was really stupid and ignorant. Adam Jones is an outfielder who played for the Baltimore Orioles for 10 years. The incident he's talking about happened in 2017. And this is just one example of the racism players of color are exposed to from fans. They're constantly talking about all the racist things that they've heard out there. Adam Jones talked about this as well, too, being called the N-word and things of that nature. Baseball fans tend to skew older and whiter. They have, I think, historically speaking, the oldest fan base of the big four major sports compared to NHL, NFL, and NBA. I think their fan base is by far the oldest, generally speaking, so they hold on to those things, whatever the case may be. They tend to be more conservative than the other sports as well. Of the big three sports, basketball probably has the best reputation when it comes to race and diversity. And there are some reasons for that. For one, basketball players aren't discouraged from expressing themselves, even when protesting racism. Rhiannon said you saw that play out during the George Floyd protest of 2020. Players spoke out and their teams and managers supported them. They even canceled games in cities where there was unrest. Another reason? Just by the numbers, the NBA really does have a more racially diverse leadership. They have more black coaches. They have more black general managers. They have more black team presidents and things of that nature. They give their black workforce more opportunities to move up and to succeed and to break certain ceilings. There's a sports report card that comes out every year from a group that looks at diversity and ethics in sports. 
And every year, the NBA consistently does better than the other major sports leagues. The NBA always gets an A-plus when it comes to the racial demographics of the owners and everyone employed by the league. Sabrina Razak again. I think that's where sometimes the illusion of representation can really prevent us or mask what is truly happening within these organizations. Do I think there's moments that can signify progress? Sure. Do I think that eliminating the dress code after Allen Iverson went through what he went through, do I think that's progress? Yes. Is there still rampant systemic racism and sexism? Absolutely. That Allen Iverson thing she mentioned, it was a big deal in basketball culture. So big that it made its way into the Colin Kaepernick series. They said he looks unprofessional, intimidating, messy. He's clearly unfocused. What are we talking about? He's dangerous. He's damaging to the lead. He's disrespectful. In 1997, right after taking the lead by storm and winning Rookie of the Year, young NBA superstar heard more criticism than kudos. That's the body language of a thug. He experienced more political policing than passionate praise. Why? Why did this exceptional player with an uncanny combination of grace and grit cause such ire from the powers that were? Well, what he did to start this controversy was simple, deliberate, and true to himself. He embraced his culture. He braided his hair. know him as AI, the answer, Allen Iverson. After bouncing around to a lot of teams, Allen Iverson eventually left the NBA, some say prematurely. Iverson's lasting reputation is largely shaped by this era. And I remember the way Iverson was talked about. He was constantly in trouble because of his appearance off the court, the cornrows, the baggy clothes. People said he was a thug. And in 2005, the then-NBA commissioner instituted a dress code policy that required athletes to wear business casual clothes to games. The policy banned hats, sunglasses, do-rags, and t-shirts. You know, all the stuff Allen Iverson was wearing. And a lot of people said that Iverson was the reason for the dress code. In 2020, the NBA finally decided to loosen up on the dress code that critics said unfairly targeted Black players. Another recent example is what happened with the former president of the Toronto Raptors, Masai Ujiri. During the 2019 NBA Finals, Ujiri was prevented from going on the court after a big team win. A police officer who was working that night didn't believe that he was a part of the team and asked to see his credentials. The situation escalated into a shoving match, and the cop alleged that Ujiri punched him in the face. He even sued Ujiri. But video evidence showed that the officer was actually the aggressor. Ujiri did eventually leave the team, but came back as general manager. And this is one of those stories Sabrina has been following really closely because she lives in Toronto. And then even now, here in Toronto, one of the owners said that he felt that Masai wasn't as deserving to be the GM and his contract was too much. Even right now, there's a big scandal with the Phoenix Suns owner, Robert Sarver. And there's an investigation into allegations that he created a racist, sexist, and hostile working environment. The language that is used by owners, which we've seen with the Phoenix Suns owner, with Sterling from L.A. who was fired years ago, how they really think about these athletes as products. 
And as ones where they can control, they can tell them how to behave, how to dress, how to act. And at a moment's notice, they could be gone. We've talked about the long history of racism in sports and how it shows up today. I mean, Colin Kaepernick is still a former football player, all because he decided he wanted to protest racism. And all of these incidents that we've talked about today are well documented. So why does it feel like nothing ever really changes? Rhiannon says it all comes down to money. Until the fans are unhappy, sports leagues don't feel the need to change. I covered a team that used to have a racist name, and fans held on to that for dear life until money became the issue. Money's always the issue. If you want to change something, threaten somebody's pockets. I asked Sabrina how she could watch and enjoy sports, knowing all the awful racism that takes place. One of America's most favorite forms of entertainment, sports, right, is deeply tied into America's racism. Like, they go hand in hand. And I wonder, as a person of color who covers all of these things, how do you reconcile that? Like, how do you, how are we, how can we be fans and also know and understand and hold in our mind that, like, all these institutions are very racist and continue to be? Yeah, I always tell people that I wear two hats. I have a hat on that I love sports. And then my other hat is, I want to make them better <laughs> hat. So these are the things that we do love. And these are, you know, for me, I love it. And I want to see it better. I want to see the athletes have better experiences. And I also think, too, what happens in sport has influence in global society, right? Cristiano Ronaldo... And we have even, you know, Megan Rapino, we have Cheryl Swoops, we have Cynthia Cooper, we have so many of these athletes that have so much influence. And the fact that within America, it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. And so I think that for me too, I think that the responsibility of sporting cultures to recognize that yielding power to bring cultures together, and then also to experience that pleasure and joy, I think that there is uh, ability to really transform communities and the world through, through sport. And we've seen that it can do that. And we've also seen how it polarizes and divides and really reproduces the inequities that we face in our society today. So I think that at times, we follow. So with Naomi Osaka, placing mental health, centering it, that started conversations not only in sport, right? Like we saw that have widespread effect across multiple industries. Simone Biles doing that on the world stage. After Laura Ingram said, shut up and dribble to LeBron, he did a world tour on more than an athlete. I did a paper where you had students using the hashtag after they graduated, saying that they were inspired to pursue their dreams and also be an athlete. So I do think that when we address those inequities in sport, possibilities are endless globally. it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. But I work with the hardest working team in podcasting. The show's producer is Alicia Key. 
Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Bashir. Big thanks to Sabrina Razak and Rhiannon Walker for talking to us. And one more thing before we go. The fashion world lost an innovator and promising young leader. Virgil Abloh, the designer behind the brand Off-White and Louis Vuitton, died of cancer last week. We spoke to basketball player Dwayne Wade about the first time he met Virgil. And if you want to hear that story, check out our episode from last week. The segment is at the end of the show. Pop Culture will be back next week with a new episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.